This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to another edition of the Odds and Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Frame. Eric Scopel is with me as always. Eric, uh, we're coming off a football game in which Oregon played Colorado on a Friday night, and the Ducks won this football game 45-3. to And Oregon comes out of this, I, I think, looking really, really good on, on both sides of the football. And we're gonna, we're gonna dive into a little bit of this football game. We'll kind of tie the knot on, on this one. Look ahead to some injury news. We'll get more later today on Monday. Uh, some interesting comments about the defense, Andy Avalos, and then kind of give you an early preview of, of Washington. But some, some really good, numbers on both sides of the football and I, I think that's my biggest takeaway from this game is that for the first time against I don't want to say like a team that's going to go nine and three and be a major team in the conference but a team with a pulse Oregon played their most complete football game on both sides of the ball like I don't really have any kind of like concern either Either which way, like you'd be really nitpicking, and I think that's my biggest takeaway is that they look that good on both sides at the same time. It's, I think it's the game we were kind of waiting to see. We, we thought maybe we'd see it against California or Stanford, where the offense comes out and, and plays at a high level, and the defense plays at a high level, and we finally kind of got to see against, like we've said, probably the best offense Oregon has faced at least since Auburn. They go out and almost play a perfect game. Uh, Colorado scores three points. They have a couple opportunities to score other times in the game, but Oregon either forces turnovers, forces a field goal that goes off the upright. Those type of things happen, and it ends up being three points for Colorado. But to me, the bigger thing is the offense. And I I know Colorado's defense, probably the fourth-best defense Oregon has played so far this year. I think both Cal and Stanford are better. Auburn's obviously better. Um, but it's, it's still a defense with power five players and Oregon goes out there and puts together a really, really strong game and they score 45 points. And if you look, if, if you want to look at it a little bit more closely, like they left some points on the board. <clears throat> there, there were opportunities to score more points. Um, two touchdown passes were dropped. There were a couple of times where rather than try, try a relatively short field goal, Cristobal decided to go for it. And those, uh, fourth down plays did not, were not successful and they were turned over on downs. So there were, even with 45 points, there were opportunities to score more. And I think that speaks to just how dominant the offense was. Um, we've talked on and off about, hey, what's up with the run game? Or, hey, what's up with receiver? And I thought, for the most part, on Friday, we saw really, really strong play. I mean, I, I think it has to be one of the, 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 just the primary things is that the run game was awesome. And I don't know if we really expected that or... or uh, we're really sure what we were getting because frankly, it's been a couple of weeks and we kind of felt the run game was going to figure it out, but it was kind of show me and they finally did. And CJ Verdell ran really, really well. I thought Penny Sewell 
was just a, a mauler again. <laughs> he's just he's just really good every week. I was jo- I was joking off air with Matt that we should just prep a Pac-12 <laughs> offensive lineman of the week story for Sewell for like the rest of the season because he's basically a lock to at least be considered every week. Yes. Um, and he again was just dominant, and Oregon was able to run the ball unlike they've run all season. And I thought Verdell. A little bit more explosive explosiveness there. Uh, had a couple long runs. Obviously, the seventh yarder was great to see. Um, Cyrus Sabibi Likio continues to sort of s- cement a role in the offense around the goal line, but also not around the goal line. I thought I think his most productive game of, of his duck career. I think I know career high in, in carries with thirteen, also in touchdowns with three. So and rushing yards, yeah, with, and uh, rushing yards with uh, forty-seven. I think with forty-seven. Yeah, that's right. Um, so his best game is the Duck to date. Um, again, in a Pac-12 game where the, the snaps were all meaningful, where each touchdown meant something, even if it was, you know, extending a lead. But I mean, it was still where the first team offense was in trying to score points. So good to see that development. And again, you could continue to run down the list of really good play offensively. And that's not something that you could do, you know, most often this season. There have been so many games, especially since the Auburn game, or I should say since the Nevada game, where there's just a lot to, to nitpick. And I, yeah. I, I agree with you. There's not a whole lot offensively even to nitpick. I guess some drops, some penalties that were kind of a bummer, but for the most part, a really, really good game. Yeah, Oregon's numbers statistically were all impressive. 25 first downs. They ran for 252. They threw for 275. Finished with 527 yards, and more importantly, they they had a an average gain per play of 7.4. Um, I, I I think if there's one thing that you're gonna kind of go back over and and Crystal Ball probably gonna hammer is the penalties. Ten penalties for 119 yards. Um, a couple of them were pre-snap penalties, or which ones that you know those are the ones that really bother Mario Crystal Balls. You know, before the play even begins, you create, you know, you, you commit a, a penalty. That, those are the ones that they can fix. Um, but at the same time, a, a good chunk of those, probably half, were pass interference calls. And I think they were questionable at best. Uh, and obviously Mario's not going to come out and he's not going to, I mean, maybe he does. Maybe he doesn't like money, but, uh, but he's, he's, it's very highly unlikely he's going to come out and he's going to complain about the officiating because if he does, he gets fined, uh, by the Pac-12. But I think those are, I think some of those penalties and the yardage that came with it are probably ones that he's probably gonna, you know, deep down live with because, hey, my guys were in position, they were making plays, and it's just unfortunate that the officiating was called the way it was and, and, we were we were flagged because there were a couple of them that were it was clearly obvious that yeah in my eye and your eye that they did not deserve to be called pi and sometimes uh, they could, they should have been called offensive pass interference or it, it was just nothing in general if they were gonna if they were really doing their jobs but I, I think five pass interference calls and all but one of them were like just really bad I mean yeah. and, and and the one that wasn't really bad was kind of like. Maybe a fit, maybe a flag could have gone either way. So yeah, sure. those those were not good. Uh, defense looked really amazing, and I think the, the the biggest impression from me was a second group, a second string group that popped up. And I mean, you look at the de- the statistics on uh, the stat sheet for this one game. Backup linebacker Samson Noob led the team 
in solo tackles and in total tackles. He had five solo, nine total tackles, also with one quarterback hurry. Hockey Woods came in and he played brilliant and, and finished with six tackles, uh, including one tackle for loss. Brady Breeze uh, saw a ton of time, finished, you know, tied for second with with Woods with six tackles as well. Uh, Rome McKinley is maybe going to be the Pac-12 player of the week from a defensive standpoint. Five tackles, two interceptions, one of which was an unbelievable pick in the end zone. And that's kind of where I want to look at real quick with this defense is Verone McKinley is a guy that I remember when he signed. And there was some excitement with him, but it was basically like, hey, this is going to be a guy that we think he could be good, but he's probably going to need two, three, four years until he makes an impact. You know, redshirt sophomore, redshirt junior uh, type of a deal. And, I mean, I'm, I'm sure he certainly felt completely the opposite. He probably felt very confident in himself coming into Eugene. But right. this was a three-star guy, uh, and, and no offense to three-star guys, but those are looked at as down-the-road developmental guys. And th- I tweeted this during the game that maybe we're seeing a star emerge because he has played a ton of football. He is, he's all over the place. He's playing free safety. He's playing nickel. And he's starting to come into a form where it's like Thomas Graham and Diomede Lenore are your lockdown corners, but Verone is is not far behind. No, no, he's not. And and I'm kicking myself because I was telling Matt right right when he was making all these plays that I've been play I've been wanting to write a story just about I thought he'd been playing pretty well, but not you know obviously not announcing himself like he did on on Friday for a couple of weeks. I thought his play had been really strong in, in both Pac-12 games, and so I was planning on writing some sort of story on him leading up to this game. And, of course, didn't end up getting around to doing that. And, and then he goes out, and now everybody's going to want to be writing a story about him because he just played at such a high level. And, yeah, he's moved back and forth. He, he played in the nickel basically all of fall, but is switched almost full-time over to free safety. And it's kind of been, I think, been kind of quiet, just that Holland and McKinley sort of swapped spots right before the Auburn game and have basically been there the whole season now. And... It's a great spot for McKinley because Cristobal said he's one of the smartest football players he's ever coached. He said he's so good in terms of diagnosing opposing offensive plays that sometimes even in practice when they're, you know, running offense, he's, he's like yelling out the play call before they're even fully, you know, ready to snap the football. And he, he's going like, is he, is he, you know, cheating off the play card? Like how, how does he know what's going on? But it's just, he's, he's so smart and so kind of aware of what's going on with different alignments and different looks that, that allows him to just, I think, be in the right play, you know, spot at the right time. And that's what you want from a safety who's going to yeah. be, you know, kind of your last defense on the back end. And and, and you saw that, uh, you know, three out of the four picks were because he basically knew what was coming and made the play, right? I mean, the the, touch, the, the interception uh, with Bryson Young to start the second half was another one where he basically jumped the route and deflected it and, and Young had a chance to pick it and, and obviously did. And then, Montez's next pass attempt on the next possession, uh, McKinley's just sitting there right in the middle of the field and jumps the route and takes it the other way almost for a touchdown. So you're starting to see it come together. And, and now, you know, when you combine that with the high, the really high caliber play of Javon Holland, who we'll get to his health in a minute here, to like you said, those two cornerbacks, and then with Nick Pickett, and even you toss in Brady Breeze, Hockey Woods, DJ James played quite a bit. Yep. Mikhail Wright's been playing quite a bit. This is a really, 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 really talented secondary, and there's a reason they rank near the top of the national stats um, against the pass. 
They, I think, are tied for second um, in interceptions for us now. They've forced 12 interceptions and just three touchdown passes on the season. Um, their opposing QB rating, I think, is second nationally behind Wisconsin, who's Wisconsin's passing stats are, are nuts this year, but Oregon's right there. And it's, uh, again, it's it's not just one or two guys. It's all of the guys. And I think that goes back to your depth piece of it, this is such a talented group, not just the, 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 the 11 starters, but the guys behind those 11 starters are able to step in and play at a high level. And McKinley, a guy who I think people going into the season weren't really certain about what his role would be maybe, especially those kind of on the periphery of the program. But now, midway through the, at the midway point of the season, you go, this guy is a redshirt freshman. He's going to be a starter here possibly for three or four years and play at a really high level. And who knows, by the time his career is done at Oregon, he might be one of those big-time, big-time players that we talk about for a while. You know what I mean? 100%. I mean, the, this this group is starting to emerge defensively. We're, we're seeing a lot of of the key guys do what they should be doing, but we're also seeing guys like Verone pop up, and I think that's a a good sign for where Oregon's defense is trending this season and and where it's trending uh, down the road. Now, you kind of touched on it a little bit with the injuries. Um, there were injuries that happened in the Colorado game, and unfortunately there's going to be some ones that are going to be, you know, some, some pretty devastating ones potentially. Uh, the biggest one is Jacob Breland, Oregon starting tight end, uh, got popped in the, what was it, first quarter, second quarter, early second first. quarter. Yeah, first uh, with, with what looks like some kind of leg injury. Um, we record this podcast on Mondays, Monday mornings, and we will get some kind of clarity with Mario Cristobal Monday afternoon. And I'm expecting it to be of the nature that it's, hey, he's, if, if he's not out for the season, he's going to be out for an extended period of time and Oregon's not going to get him back until the very tail end of the 2019 football season. If, if, and that's if it's not season ending. I mean, it, that's what it, it looks like. Non-contact look like kind of knee injury and just those, you know, typically just do not end well. It would be a big shock, unfortunately. And I hate to speculate, but that's going to be the injury that, that really hurts things. Now, where does Oregon go from there? If, if Breland can't go, there's going to be some shuffling, right, along the offense uh, position groups once again. Yeah, there has to be. And, you know, I, it, it's really – it's a bummer. Again, this is, again, just like Gus Cumberlander, who's lost for the season uh, a couple weeks back, this is another senior who's really starting to play his best football his last season. You know, Jacob Ridland was on pace with six touchdowns at this point in the midway point of the season – a boatload of receptions and yards. He was on pace to have one of the best individual tight end seasons in Oregon program history. And in fact, if he would have played at, you know, kind of duplicated this start to the season, it would have been, I think, undoubtedly the best individual receiving season for a tight end in program history. And to see that, to see that ended in the, in the manner that it is, is, is really a bummer. Uh, and you're right though, they have to find answers now because Breland had become a huge part of this passing attack. And you go into a week now against Washington where you're going to have to have, say what you will about Washington and their struggles, but you're going to have to have all the offensive weapons you can. And losing arguably Justin Herbert's favorite passing target at this junction of the season is really rough. Um, I think from the tight end perspective, it's, it's, it's sort of a bummer because Cam McCormick, who would have been the likely and obvious replacement is also out for the He's season. He's also hurt. 
Um, and so that's not available. Uh, you go to Hunter Campmoyer and Ryan Bay, those are two veteran guys who played a lot of football, but unfortunately neither of them are the receiver or anywhere close to that Jacob Breland was. Those guys can maybe replicate the pass-blocking stuff um, or the run-blocking stuff, and they can definitely help in those areas, but we haven't really seen it come together in terms of running routes and catching the football. That's just not something we've really seen either of them do at high level, so that yeah, leaves you kind of with Spencer Webb and Patrick Herbert. And you hope those guys are capable. We've already seen Spencer Webb make some plays in the passing game. We haven't seen hardly any of Patrick Herbert, we should say. But, boy, somebody's going to have to step up that's never stepped up in a role like this um, for the for the passing game to really be what it's been previously. Or you're going to see them pivot and kind of the tight end is no longer going to be quite as big of a role in the passing game. And I don't know which it's going to be. I think it maybe is going to be the latter because I just don't know if I see enough out of those guys yet to say, boy, one of these guys is going to step in and Herbert's going to be able to utilize them 80% of what Jacob Reeland was. I don't know. Sure. I, haven't, I, I haven't seen that enough yet. Hunter Kampmeyer had a touchdown. I mean, they ran a just, you know, the, the, the most Jacob A money Breland. play, something that they ran multiple times, a couple times for scores. Yeah, to, to, for Breeland on that. Really, I love that play call where they, yeah, they uh, pump fake underneath. He goes over the top and it's wide open. And Kampmeyer had, and we should say the ball was slightly overthrown, but Breland, Webb, some of those guys probably coming down with that pass, and Kampmeyer wasn't able to do so. Um, those are the type of plays you need to get from that tight end spot. And if you can't make those spots, that takes away, again, a pretty big component of the offense. So they're going to need to find something there in the passing game, or it's going to have to be some of these emerging guys coming back from injuries, like Micah Pittman, Joan Johnson, and Brendan Schooler, stepping up and making plays because you, you're losing, unfortunately, with Breland, a big component of the passing attack so far to this point of the season, and you've got to find ways to replace it. And like I said a second ago, I'm not super confident that there's a tight end left on the roster right now who's available who really can provide that for you. Yeah, this is going to come down to, I think, it's all going to be now scheme. It's going to come down to just can you scheme up some situations where you are presenting your players in their best situational impacts, if that makes any kind of sense. Um we're gonna we're gonna see Mario Cristobal and Marcus Arroyo, Oregon's offensive coordinator, have to come up with game plans now that don't kind of tip the play call before it happens. Because look, Ryan Bay and Hunter Campmore were two of the team's best, or are two of the team's best blocking tight ends. I mean, they're they were doing as good, if not a, a better job, than Breland was, but. Breland's impact in the, in the receiving game was far superior than what those two guys have done. Now, so I think they can get away with Hunter Campmoyer and Jake, uh, and Ryan Bay playing significant snaps and starting, especially on run plays, because those guys are effective there. But you have to be able to come up with something where the defense just doesn't know, you know, hey, Ryan Bay or Hunter Kentmoyer in, it's a 95% chance it's going to be a run. Like you, you can't scheme to that. Or I think maybe the, the impact that we see is maybe this forces Oregon to go like what you said and to rely more on the three guys that have gotten back from injury at receiver. And we see more four wide opportunities. You know, we see more opportunities with four wide, five wide type stuff or possibly we see two running back sets. We saw that quite a bit uh, in the second half, in the second quarter against Colorado, where 
they had Verdell, they had Felix, they had Cyrus Ibilakio in the in the backfield at the same time, two running backs at once. And oftentimes one of them motioned out into the flat or, you know, a short passing game, but we might see more of that as well. And it's going to it's going to force the staff to get more creative of how they deploy personnel because I don't think you just can't you know, you just can't trot out those guys and expect them to, to you know, be able to go out and say, hey, we're going to run the football with these two guys and we're still going to be able to, you know, overpower them every single play. You might be able to do that against some opponents, but the opponent they play against this weekend, the team that they're going to play in two weeks at USC, uh, if they happen to get to the conference championship and play Utah, you're not going to be able to, to go out there even though the, 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 the defense is knowing a run's coming and still effectively do that every single time. You're going to have to create some kind of a matchup, situational play, call, whatever, with tight ends or other guys and I, you know, receivers. And I agree with you. We're probably going to see now Webb move back to tight end and we might see Patrick Herbert's redshirt get blown because of injuries. I just and I had one last thought just on the replacement aspect of it. I, I saw a lot on social media people asking why it wasn't Spencer Webb that was out there playing all the snaps at tight end. He had moved to receiver, and unless something had changed in practice, and again we've had kind of practice access changed, and we haven't been able to go in there and watch. But my understanding is he's still been at wide receiver, so they're probably going to move him back to tight end this week, and maybe that sets him up to be the replacement. But the other thing is, is like after that great catch against Auburn, we didn't really see much from him for the last five games, and there was opportunity, especially in those first three or four, to really make an impact, and he didn't do it. So yeah. um, I, I know that catch against Auburn was awesome. I know he has a ton of physical tools. I think everybody on the team and, and, you know, and all the fans watching is very much aware of his physical talent, but for whatever reason, it has not come together. I think the absolute – I'll say this. The absolute best-case scenario is Spencer Webb. It all clicks for him. And you get him to play and re- you know, kind of fill that Jacob Breeland role at tight end. That would be absolute best case. At this point, I'm a little skeptical though, based upon kind of his track record since that Auburn game. We haven't addressed the other two injuries. Troy died, Javon Holland, both probably arguably Oregon's two best defensive players. Is that right, Eric? Uh, yeah, I would say so. Definitely your best linebacker and your best safety. I would say they're your, your best two. Yeah. Both those guys go down with injuries against Colorado, and while we don't have official official word on their availability uh, for Washington this weekend, Mark Cristobal did give encouraging news Friday night, saying that he felt like both those guys' injuries were minor. Neither of them played in the second half. Um, Die had some kind of uh, injury, and they both had they, they hit each other on a play. What was that like midway through the second quarter, late second quarter? Um, yeah. and both of them had to be kind of helped off. Die eventually was able to help Holland off the field, but both guys went into the medical tent. Die emerged a couple minutes later. I think the next series he popped back out and then didn't return in the second half. Um, Holland showed up in the second half on the sideline with a boot on. Um, but he did take part and shout. So that's. That's something. Um, but I, I think it's safe to say, I mean, I've heard some things, I've reported it on our site earlier, uh, this past weekend. Um, but 
it's sounding like both these guys are going to be good to go uh, against Washington this weekend. We'll have probably official word from Mario Cristobal later this afternoon. And if that is the case, that's a huge sigh of relief because, like we established, arguably your two best defensive players, Holland at times has looked like, frankly, the team's best player, perhaps, yeah. regardless of position. I mean, he's had some games where he's really flexed his muscle and, and shown why I think he's going to be a player who plays in the NFL for a very long time. Playing games, we've talked about the depth on this team, and there's no doubt that they have the pieces behind those guys to, to still play at a high level, but there's still going to be somewhat of a drop-off, I think, when you go from two guys who are going to play on Sundays to two guys that are obviously their backups and haven't quite established themselves quite in that same light yet. And if those two guys are available, that's huge. It means you go into this game against Washington close to 100% defensively in terms of, like, if you go back to where they started in fall camp, I think Gus Cumberlander and Adrian Jackson are, like, the only two guys that were kind of on that original two-deep who are unavailable midway through the season. And that's, again... That's great from an injury perspective. Obviously, it sucks to lose two guys, but being that close, it doesn't always happen that way. So um, if that is the case, Oregon is going to be, again, right there at pretty close to 100% against a really good, or what's looked like a good Austin offense recently, 51 points against Arizona on Saturday. They'll need everything they can, I think, to, to get this win, and having those two guys go a very long way in terms of getting that done. All right, now let's take our break, and we'll come back. You're listening to the Odds and Audibles podcast with Matt Prem uh, and Eric Scopel. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The wait is over. The Shy returns with new episodes on Paramount+. Plus. What brings you to the show? Opportunity. Everybody get down! Walk right up to the side. A new rain is coming to the south side. Never should have sent a boy to do a woman's job. The Shy. New episodes now streaming. Visit ParamountPlus.com slash The Shy to get a 50% discount off the Paramount Plus with the Showtime annual plan. Offer ends July 14th. The subscription auto-renews. Restrictions apply. All right, welcome back to the Odds and Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Prem. Eric Scopel is with me as always. Um, Brady Breeze, you, you spoke with Brady Breeze after this football game was over uh, against Colorado this past Friday, and he, he dropped an interesting comment to you in that they're trying to make this Oregon team into gangrene 2.0. Just go more into just overall that that reasoning of, of of what why he thinks that's happening. Well, I'll just I'll read you the quote he gave, and he and Brady's an awesome. I think we have the uh, the full video up on the website, or at least it's on YouTube, um, and you should go check it out because again, Brady's a great interview. But he said we're we're really rocking and rolling right now. We still got to get better. There's some things we have to break down this week, but we're trying to become Gang Green 2.0. That's what we talk about, and I'm excited to see what we can do with this defense this season. Um, he, he, he just said over the course and, and 
so did Verone McKinley and a couple other players I spoke with after the game, that there's so much confidence from this group right now because they've strung together five consecutive really, really impressive defensive games, and that brings them back to some of these game green, def- you know, the game green defenses of 94, and I think people have talked about, I thought game green defense was 94, and people have talked about something in the 50s, I think 58, which is the last time Oregon has had uh, five games where they've held an opponent under 10 points, so there's some there's some history with it, and obviously this defense looks special right now. I think they're trying to basically throw an homage and say, we want to be considered among the best Oregon has ever had at this school because they're playing at that level right now, and they have to do it throughout the rest of the season. And I think that's the goal that Breeze was kind of putting out there, is we have to do it for six more weeks. And I thought another quote from Verone on Saturday really stands out, too. He says, we're confident, but the thing is we fear complacency. We can't get complacent. We have to get better every week. And I think you love hearing those type of comments from players who are, again, playing on a defense that has played at such a high level, right? right. I mean, it's it's almost kind of like, what are you trying to get better at? But obviously there are a ton of things they see and, and, and are focusing on, and that's what makes a defense great. And so uh, this is a group that is focused and dialed in, not just – and performing at a high level, but at being the very, very best. And they take each possession seriously. McKinley was asked about some of those possessions in the second half where Colorado was going in to try to score a touchdown and, and, you know, go over, you know, and add to the touchdown, you know, streak of this season and just said, we're trying to make teams play uh, by three points, you know, you know, in, in groups of three. And they did not want Colorado to score a touchdown, even if it was meaningless, right. you know, in terms of the grand scheme of thing, even if it didn't really mean anything on the scoreboard. That was something that they weren't interested in taking part in. They, this group wants to stop opposing offenses. They want to be the dominant force. And again, now for five straight games, we've seen them do that. And I think they're, they're setting their sights on, on excellence. And, and you're seeing that with that kind of gang green comment of we want to be one of the best defenses in program history. And Brady Breeze, you should mention, Knows that better than most players, given his you know family background with this program. One hundred percent, and I I think what I'm almost there. Like I I think this group is is going to be one of the best defenses that we will have seen during the lore of Oregon football. Like I still go with the idea of they've played basically two teams that have a competent offense this season, Colorado being one, Auburn being two. Um, maybe you could throw in Stanford into that group, maybe, but I, I'm not going to. Um, we said this last week, this was going to be a four-week stretch where we learned if, you know, just truly how good this defense is could be, or if they're not as good as we think they are, because they played Colorado this week, they play Washington next week, they play Washington state. And then they go to USC, um, seeing how they just completely dismantled Colorado. And look, Montez, he will, he probably won't be drafted, but he will be on an NFL roster during spring, you know, during training camp and during preseason. And he will have a chance to make a practice squad. He, he's that good of a quarterback. He, and he may get drafted, you know, in a, in a late round pick, but he's not a slouch and he's a really good college quarterback. LaVisca Chenault is potentially a first round draft pick at the receiver position. Katie Nixon, Tony Brown, you know, they've got a couple other guys too in the mix. 
are all really good receivers. And Oregon just completely shut them all down. I mean, they tried going over – their best pass play was throwing it deep and hoping the refs threw a, a PI uh, penalty flag. That was that was how their offense was effective in, in terms of creating chunk plays because for the most part, they couldn't convert anything downfield. So I, I, I was greatly impressed with them. We'll continue to learn more as we go on, but I'm, I'm beginning to lean more towards, I think, where you fall in that this is a group that is going to go down as one of the best ever. And they've got some crucial games upcoming to prove it again. And we talked about that on the podcast previously. This games against Washington, Washington State and USC in particular are the biggest challenges probably yet from an offensive perspective. Certainly. Uh, on par, if not a little bit more challenging than Colorado. So you're going to learn a little bit more. But every challenge that's been put in front of them, really, so far this season, um, and I think you can throw in the Auburn game to a certain extent. I, I don't blame them for that loss. Obviously, they gave up some touchdowns in the second half that were the difference. But they that first half, they were awesome against, you know, against an Auburn offense that I don't think is an elite offense, but is certainly a, a very talented one. Um, but Every game since then, certainly they've they've stepped up to the challenge, and they are playing at such a high level that some of the statistics are are, are honestly kind of like I didn't know if I'd ever see this from an Oregon caliber defense. You know what I mean? Where you look up at the national leaderboard and it's like Oregon is in the top fifteen in basically every category across the board, whether it's scoring defense or if it's rushing or passing defense or it's sacks or turnovers forced or red zone defense. I mean, they're at the top. I mean, they're such a complete group. And I think that, to me, is both what makes this group so good and also what surprises me to a certain extent is that it's not like there's one area. It's not like you can go, man, they're good at everything, but X, Y, and Z, they're still not – they're kind of lacking. There's not really an area that you can point to and go, "Uh, I don't know about this. Like, they're so complete. And, again, I think it comes back to that depth. And we should give a lot of, I think, a lot of credit, not just to Andy Avalos, who everybody is very, very high on. Oregon's players calling him a genius and a mastermind after the game. But I think to the rest of that defensive staff, because unit by unit, they've played at such a high level, whether it's the corners or the safeties or the outside linebackers, inside linebackers, Joe Salavea's defensive line. There just isn't a, you know, a glaring, gaping hole from this group, either in terms of how they play or just a position group. I mean, everybody seems like they're up for it every week. And what the end result is, is opposing offenses having very little chance of scoring. And you do that time and time again, and you set yourself up to be very, very difficult to beat because it's a lot to ask of an opposing offense to come out and score a couple touchdowns against this defense right now. I mean, that's a ton to ask. I thought Colorado was going to come out and score. I had them at 17 points. I think you had them at 28. Yeah, and, and they scored three points, and they were kind of lucky to do that. So, um, it's it's this is a group that, yeah, I'm I'm starting to get there. You know, you're at the midway point of the season. That's where you can really start talking about it. They play half sure. of the regular season games. Like this is not a fluke. One or two games is a fluke. Five straight games where you have allowed under ten points, and you've allowed one combined touchdown. I think it's one touchdown on sixty three possessions. Like that's just crazy. Um, so. I'm, I'm all in with this group. I, I think I think they're very special, and I think you have to continue to feel that way. And again, I think you're going to learn quite a bit this Saturday in Washington. Uh, again, it's your, I guess, it's your second official road game, third uh, game from Watson Stadium against a you know a Power Five team. They've again they've done a pretty good job in those games so far. But this is a rivalry game. There's a ton on the line. If Oregon wins this game, 
and I'm sure we can get to this at the end here more as well, but if Oregon wins this game, they're in very, very good shape to win the Pac-12 North. I mean, very, very good shape. Why do you think this defense is so successful? Like, I, like, there's, I, I really think this boils down to Oregon's depth being created. Like, cause basically for the most part, all their key guys are back from last year. Like, they had, they, they had to replace Ugo Amadi. They had to replace Justin Hollins and Jalen, uh, Jokes. All three of those guys are in the NFL. And, at the same time, like all their, you know, Troy Dye was the team's best defensive player last year. Jordan Scott was Oregon's best defensive lineman last year. Um, I, I think Ugo is probably the team's best secondary player, but he was the best out of a loaded group. I mean, Thomas Graham, Diamond Lenore, Javon Holland, and Nick Pickett, you know, those four guys all played a ton of snaps. You know, they basically rotated five guys in and were all Basically, a second string or honorable mention caliber players for Oregon. So it doesn't really surprise me that the secondary, even though they lost their best player, it has improved. But I think it's, for me, it's the guys that are, that are in the second unit. Like, his, you know, the last three or four years, this defense, when the first string guy has had to come off the field, there was a significant drop off, um, from where they were in terms of talent and what they could get out of production from that second unit. And I think the gap between the first and second string has closed considerably. I mean, Drayton Kralberg was a guy that, that was basically a, a small role player three years ago. And now he's, he's pushed his way into a starting rotation spot that was manned by Austin Folio. Uh, we, we've got Lamar Winston, who was a starter and, you know, yeah, there was a scheme change, but, you know, he's having to fight every, every week to, to, to be a, you know, a, a regular starter or a regular guy on the team, uh, during, you know, snaps on with the first team defense. Uh, you know, I, I think guys like Verone McKinley, Mace Funa, Kayvon Thibodeau, uh, Michael Wright, um, you know, I, I'm sure I'm missing a couple of guys. Brady Breeze is another one that's really level, uh, you know, elevated his game. Uh, I, I'm sure I'm missing guys. But. Uh, hockey, hockey Woods stands out yeah. on, on Friday. I, we had no idea what to expect from hockey. In fact, what we had seen from hockey in the past hadn't been particularly good football. The most memorable plays are, I think, penalties that have been kind of silly. That You're kind of like, what are you doing? And he goes out there, and he plays awesome for three quarters as basically Javon Holland's fill-in. And that just speaks to the depth, too, because that was a guy who, honestly, I was kind of like, uh, I think that might be a pretty big step back. And he went out there, and it was like nothing had changed. So I, I think the difference is is that we're seeing a group close the gap between the second and first string, and the drop-off is very minimal. Yeah, I think that's a huge part. I think Andy Avalos, again, and his staff deserves a ton of credit for developing all of that. And I think Avalos, in general, just like – we all knew Jim Levitt was a really good defensive coordinator. I don't think anybody was saying otherwise, even though it kind of ended weird with him in terms of the departure. But they've upgraded, and I don't know if we kind of knew that was going to be the case immediately. I certainly didn't come into this season thinking they were going to be this good this fast. Um, clearly, this whole team is just bought into what he's doing. And I think you earn respect when you prove that you are capable. And this defensive player is just listening to them talk about Andy Avalos. There's a lot of trust in what he's doing and confidence that he knows each time and each play call is going to be the right one. Brady Breeze had an interesting quote 
um, just about in-game of sometimes he says they get the play call from Avalos and they go, we're doing that against this offensive look? Like, what are we doing? And then it works, and they're like, it's just a con- it's just a reminder of, oh, we shouldn't second-guess what he's doing. We, we know each time he's going to put us in the right position, and like we've sta- established time and time again, he's been right. So I think that plays into it. I think the depth part is, is probably number one, but I just think having – that confidence and trust in the person in charge of the defense, that play, that's a huge role, right? I mean, when you know that the person in command and in charge is really, really good at what they do, I think that elevates everybody around you because yep. you start, you start to realize, you know, because if you don't have that confidence and trust, you second guess maybe what's going on. And then you're kind of, if you're, if you're mentally kind of out of sorts, it's hard to play physically. And I think, when you're so confident that the defensive coordinator and that the play calls are going to be the right ones, and, you, and that frees you up to just kind of run to the football and do what you're supposed to do, I think that's a big role too. And I think, again, Andy Alvalos is somebody that if you're an Oregon fan, uh, you have to just be so excited and happy about his addition to the staff and then, frankly, like find any way if you're Oregon to keep him around. We've said that a number of times in the podcast, but – he, he's somebody you have to find a way to lock down because he is a special special coach for this Oregon off, or Oregon defense. Yeah, ESPN they've released kind of their midseason rankings or awards and whatnot, um, and they've basically they're projecting that Andy Avalos wins the Frank Broyles Award, which goes to the best assistant coach in college football. Um, and their reasoning here, real just real quick, is the the top defense in the FBS per the S&P Plus. Uh, S&P is their analytical stats, and Oregon's defense is number one. Uh, it currently belongs to the Ducks, and they were 66th over the past five seasons and bottomed out at 106th uh, just three years ago during the 2016 season. So Andy Avalos has taken a group that was three years ago one of the worst defenses statistically and analytically, uh, and, and now – is ranked as the number one defense from an analytical standpoint. And then from just a pure, you know, you don't want to go too deep into the numbers. They're, they're a top five defense, top 10 defense in almost every major statistical category, which is pretty darn impressive. So my question, I guess now that you have to debate is Oregon was paying Jim Levitt like $2.1 million a, a year. Um, his last season at Oregon, do you approach that number now with Andy Avalos next season? Well, Avalos is making what, 850,000 or something this year? Yeah. I'd have to go back. I, I, I didn't have that number pulled up in front of me, but he's, you certainly have to get closer to that number. I don't know if you can get all the way there, but you have to find a way to keep him because you know, based upon what this defense is doing, look, teams in the country are, people aren't, Silly, and they're not stupid. They're not paying, you know, they're not missing what he's doing at Oregon. And as much as there's this, you know, point of, oh, the West Coast, maybe it gets forgotten a little bit. There's people in the country who are paying attention. I guarantee you that. I'm sure Auburn, what came up and out of that game going like, boy, that's a, that defense is ready to play. Yep. And you know, there's going to be suitors this offseason and every offseason as long as he stays at Oregon. So you better find a way to make him comfortable, whether that's financial or, something else, but this is a coach, you you can't let him get away after a year. You certainly can't, you know, that, that's not something that you can let happen, and you can't let him get away after probably two or three years, you know, and, and there's obviously maybe a head coaching job for him if maybe the Boise State job opens up or something like that, that's going to be hard for him to turn down, but you certainly don't 
you certainly have to find a way to stop it, stop other schools from being an attractive option for him, especially as a coordinator. And if that means pumping up a contract where he's making, you know, 80%, you know, I don't know what it is, but if he's making a couple, you know, a million and a half or whatever, then you do it because you just have to find a way. Like this is a special thing. This is reminiscent of when Chip Kelly took over as offensive coordinator at Oregon and then they promoted him to head coach in a couple of years. And I'm not calling for him to be promoted over Mark Cristobal because I think they've got a really good thing going with him as a head coach. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't go that route at all. I think that would be silly to, to kind of lose out on, on, on what he's doing. But at the same time, you've got to find a way to keep Andy Avalos. He is a critical, critical part of this team and this, and what the, you know, the trajectory of this team is because we've talked about in the podcast. There's a lot of youth on this defense and a yep. lot of really good talent coming in, and it could get better get and better, better and better and better each year. So if you keep him around for if, – if you can keep him here for three to five years or something like that, you're talking about a defensive dynasty with just the talent that's coming in, that's talent that's still here. Um, I mean, the ceiling is so high. I'm getting – I mean, I'm just getting excited thinking about three years of this defense and what that would mean, even if there is a, a, a somewhat of a slight drop-off, obviously, at quarterback from Justin Herbert to whoever his replacement is the next couple of years. This defense is going to keep them at least relevant. Um, as long as Andy Avalos is here. So, yeah, you've got to find a way to keep him around. And I don't know what that means. I don't know what the number has to be. But you basically, I think you give him a blank check and tell him to fill it out and say, this is if that's what you want, we're doing it. Because he's that special and that big part of a, uh, of this kind of Oregon offense and the direction that it's currently going. Yeah, he signed a three-year deal uh, this this summer or spring. Um, he earned $765,000 this season, goes up to 815000 in 2020. And then eight hundred and sixty-five thousand in twenty twenty-one. Um, that's a good chunk of money. That's a that I mean, oh, compared to historically what Oregon is paying uh, or has paid, that's a significant upgrade um, for Andy Avalos. Uh, but I'm with you he, at this point in time with what we've seen in six weeks, knowing that there's going to be group of five, power five jobs opened up. How, you know, if, if Oregon continues to win and they win the conference, they win the Rose Bowl, someone's going to come after Andy Avalos, whether he's ready for it or not. And, you know, whether it's the D coordinator job at a, a really big, you know, a, 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 an Alabama or a Clemson or, you know, something of that nature, or we see a school come in and, and offer Andy Avalos the head coaching job. And and so I think you're right. You have to do everything you can in your power to make sure that he's a appreciated. And I'm not saying that, that Oregon doesn't, you know, I'm sure Andy Avalos is very well aware of how much the Oregon program appreciates his, his productivity and, and the entire staff. But, and that's another thing, you know, it, it, it's, it's not just an Andy Avalos deal here. It's, it's a lot of guys. And I think, you have to examine yourself and you have to go back and you have to look at, look, what can we do to, to make our, our situation better for our, our coaches to stay here? And, and the reality is eventually one, some, most of them will move on because they will get elevated. That's what happens when you put together a winning program is losing programs come to you and raid your seconds and your, your lieutenants and your ground guys to, to, kind of steal some of the magic that you have and hope it catches on at their spot. So eventually, you know, Oregon's going to see some assistant coaches leave for, for upgrades and coaching jobs. And that's what you want as head coach of Mario Cristobal. But like you said, 
you need to be able to to capture and maximize your time that you have Andy Avalos on campus because I think he's going to be a head coach at some point somewhere. Me too. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he just you look at him, you interview him, the way he talks, the way he handles the defense, the way he runs that side of the ball. That looks like a a, head, a future head coach. And as long as Oregon continues to have success he will eventually get his chance. And so it's up to Oregon now to just see how long can they keep him at Oregon until that opportunity arises. So I, I would have no problem if Oregon after the season was like, hey, we're announcing an Andy Avalos deal. We're going to bump him to a five-year deal. And instead of him making $2.4 million over three years, he's now going to make something like $6.8 over over five years or something of that nature. Like that – that wouldn't surprise me at all um, if, if that's what happens. And I would have – I wouldn't be able to – if, if that happened, I, I wouldn't – in my mind, I wouldn't – you know, oh, that's too much money. Why are you spending that? I wouldn't go down that path at all. I think it's 100% deserved. So, all right, let's, let's wrap up this show with an early look um, at this weekend. It, we've gone so long, we haven't talked about the, the, the Washington Huskies yet. <laughs> I don't know, I don't know how we did that, Matt. We did, we talked like 45 minutes and not mentioned the biggest rivalry game of the season, and it's basically here. <laughs> it, 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 it's a game that's, quite honestly, like, the ramifications for both teams, this could legitimately decide the Pac-12 North. As, as, as crazy as that sounds. Yeah. Well, I mean, let's put it this way. If Oregon wins this game, they're now 4-0, and they have the tiebreak against, I'd say, the three best, next teams. best teams in the Pac-12 North, and Washington State's sitting there without a win right now. Um, and they come to, you, to Eugene the following week. And, again, Oregon can really win the Pac-12 North in the next two weeks. If they win the next two games and they're 5-0 and and everybody else is three losses or more and Oregon has a tiebreaker against all of them besides Oregon State, it's over. I, 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 they'd have to totally implode and basically lose out to not win the Pac-12 North. I think they would, right? I mean, if they're five and zero and everybody else has three losses and the, and Oregon has a tiebreak, like it's over at that point. So these next games are critical, and Oregon has a chance to go up to Seattle. And if I think I really think if they played like they played against Colorado, I don't know how competitive the game is going to be. I think Oregon could win by two or three touchdowns, but I also don't know if it's reasonable to expect that. And I think I think this defense is going to continue to play at a high level. They're going to be challenged. Jacob Eason, we you know, is is definitely the best quarterback from a pure talent perspective Oregon has faced. I don't think there's anyone questioning that. Um, there are this offensive line for Washington is probably also the best Oregon has faced um, this season. Certainly one of the top couple. Uh, they're going to be challenged, but to me, it'll come down to what this Oregon offense can do um, against a Washington defense that's been kind of up and down. It's not been quite as good as it's been the past couple of years, but if Oregon comes out offensively and can score probably 28 points, I think they're going to win. I don't think there's much debating that. But if it's a game where they only get to 17 or 21 points again, that's where maybe it gets rocky. Are you buying um, the early betting line, Oregon as a three-point favorite? Does that shock you? Is that kind of right where you were expecting it one way or the other? I think that's kind of the sweet spot for me. Obviously, coming into the season, you would have expected Washington to be favored at home in this game. But with how Washington's performed, dropping a couple games here, especially two games to common opponents. I mean, Oregon has beaten the two teams that Washington has lost to this season. Um, so clearly, Oregon, I think, is a step up. And 
what Oregon did against Colorado maybe earned Oregon an extra point or two there, but I'm not. It's already moved. I yeah. mean, it's it's moved from three and a half to now two and a half. Yeah, it's kind of it's interesting how that takes place sometimes, just the the, the movement there. But I, I don't have a huge problem with it. I, I think it's going to be. I think it's going to be a line that maybe has a lot of movement all week. I'll be curious to see yeah. where it ends up. I think it's going to it's going to say a lot about the national perception or, or just the betting perception of these programs to see where it lands. Like, is this going to be a thing where it comes back the other way and Oregon ends up, you know, the, is a four or five point favorite, or is this going to be a thing where it's almost like a, a you know a pick 'em by kickoff? I wouldn't be surprised really either way, but I think Oregon deserves to be favored based upon what we've seen this season. I think they're pretty clearly the more impressive team, at least through the midway point of the season, and that could change. This could be the turning point of the season where Washington figures it out and they beat Oregon and suddenly uh, there's a real tight race for the Pac-12 North. But I also think it's a scenario where it could go the other way and Oregon wins handily, and like I said earlier, it really kind of puts the, the Pac-12 North on ice. Yeah, I, I think this line's kind of right about where it should have opened. Um, I think Oregon's the better team right now. I, I think Oregon has the opportunity to blow this open if if they play their best football. But the reality is is that this team has played two games on the road this season. If they've played six games so far, and they've played two of them on the road, one of which was a neutral setting. And, yeah, it was more pro-Auburn than it was Pro Oregon, but there was still a good contingent of Duck fans there that didn't make it a road atmosphere. And then Stanford, that has virtually no atmosphere (laughs) at all. (laughs) So, like this is this is going to be Oregon's first test on the road, and it's going to be a hostile environment. It might be the toughest place they play all year. You know, I I I can't think of a place that's going to be tougher. I mean, especially the way USC season has gone. I don't see, you know, the Coliseum being a, a raucous environment. It, it could be loud, it could be raucous, but it's not going to top, I think, what Washington will bring to the table. So we've certainly documented time and time again the road issues that this program has had over the years. And while I think they've kind of exercised those demons a little bit, this arguably is going to be their toughest road game environment that they've played in since probably 2016, maybe at Washington, or maybe last year at Washington State, or if if it's not one of those two, it's going to be at Nebraska in 2016. Yeah, I don't think that can be overlooked because I think you bring up a good point where you feel like because Oregon beat Stanford on the road that they've kind of exercised those demons, but like you said, there were like there's no atmosphere. There were like maybe a thousand Stanford fans there, like a you know 20 minutes before kickoff, and then it did sort of fill up a little bit. And I, don't, I shouldn't say fill up, but it, there were more people in the stands than empty seats by the end of by you know by the end of the game, I think. But that was not that was almost a pro Oregon atmosphere. That was like almost a neutral site game, just yes. in terms of the crowd. Um, that won't be the case in Seattle. I think Oregon will travel well for this because there's so much on the line. I think Oregon will bring a good contingent of fans, but Washington has so much pride as a program, and this game means so much, not just for the North, but just from a rivalry perspective. And, uh, you know, Oregon fans and Washington fans don't particularly like each other. And uh, I know that they're going to show up and, and want to do whatever they can to play an impact in this game. And I expect Oregon to be challenged on the road here. And, again, we saw last season, especially against Washington State, Arizona, and Utah, 
Oregon have some really, really bad moments on the road. And I think you're going to learn a little bit more this week about whether they fully exercise that or not. Because it wouldn't be totally out of the realm of possibilities to see Oregon totally play a stinker for a quarter and a half yep. and suddenly have to play catch-up. And given the way that Oregon has played at times offensively, that could be a tough, tough hill to climb, I think. So certainly a good point to bring up in terms of we, I think, all feel pretty good about the improvements we've seen on the road so far, but it's still a small sample size, and I don't even know if you can really constitute playing at Stanford Stadium as a true road environment just because it is such a wine and cheese kind of sit on your hands, maybe read a chemistry book kind of crowd. <laughs> but, all right, that's going to do it for us on the Austin Audible's podcast. I'm Matt Preem. That's Eric Scopel. Thanks for listening. We'll tune in uh, later this week for an interview with a Washington writer. We'll get that squared away and then we've got mailbag wednesday as well uh and then our final preview as well of the show uh of, of the game coming up so it's washington week hope you guys enjoy it uh stick with us at duckterritory.com for more thanks guys adios amigos on may 23rd i want to go back to normal what's normal the paramount plus original series evil returns we've already hunted werewolves and demons and now what a baby antichrist <laughs> prepare yourself you will not beat us for the end i have visions of hell make it stop make it shut up you're not gonna survive this evil the final season streaming may 23rd only on paramount plus